Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.7, The Origins of Bacon's Rebellion. So far, over the course of this podcast, we have been telling the story of the colonies, moving from an initial place of instability towards that much more sought-after stability. We have gone from the early years of Jamestown, through the starving time, conflict with Powden, and all the way to a functioning government in Virginia. The same goes in New England, where we have been able to shift our conversation from questions of survival and starvation to the structure of legal codes and government systems. However, we all know that this isn't exactly how the story goes. We know that the history of the United States isn't a straight line moving from chaos to a more orderly form. Rather, change and development comes in fits and bursts. Instability and conflict move back in on a regular basis and disrupt the then-established order of the day. We are going to see this time and time again as we move throughout this podcast. For the young colonies, this is about to be one of those times where an era of upheaval is about to move through and shake up the entire structure. In the coming weeks and months, we are going to look at rebellions as they break out all throughout English North America. We are going to see rebellions in New England, in New York, in Virginia and Maryland. All of this is going to help form a basic question that is going to reign supreme throughout the next century. Specifically, what is the role of the North American English colonies in the greater English empire? These years in American history, and specifically I'm talking about those years between 1670 and 1700, are going to profoundly change the relationship between the colonies and the English. There is at least an argument that can be made that the road to revolution is going to largely be laid out over this 30-year span. And while I don't necessarily believe that to be completely true, it is undeniable that this span of time is going to forever alter the relationship between the English and their American colonists. Today, however, we are going to start by looking at an event that has had such a wide range of interpretations that it can be difficult to make sense of what actually occurred. I am talking about the first major rebellion in the English colonies, Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion holds an interesting place in history and has a legacy that has become so clouded by myth that the actual events and ramifications of the rebellion can often get lost in the mire. During my research, I have seen Bacon's Rebellion referred to as an insurrection, a civil war, a riot, and a revolution. I have seen it called a precursor to the 1775 revolution, a failed attempt at liberty a full 100 years before Lexington and Concord. It has been referred to as the event that established the complex race relations that we have in the United States. Nathaniel Bacon himself is called everything from a traitor and a radical to a hero and a revolutionary. Today, Bacon has memorials celebrating him as a great patriot leader throughout Virginia, including in the state capital itself. Despite this, historians have long debated the actual effect that Bacon had as well as his influence on the American Revolution a century later. These are questions that we are going to work on parsing out over the next several episodes. We are going to spend our time looking at the causes of the rebellion, the events of the rebellion itself, and then finally look at the legacy and influence of Bacon's rebellion on later events in American political history. To begin today, I want to take some time to look at the long-term causes of the rebellion. 
If you are a high school student taking a test right now and the question asks, what caused Bacon's Rebellion? The answer is C. The rebellion was the result of repeated Indian attacks and the failure of the Virginia government to adequately respond to the ongoing threat. However, as is nearly always the case, the real reasons for the rebellion are far more complex and long in the making. Sure, the above answer is correct. However, the relationship with the local Native Americans is really just the spark that ignited a powder keg that had been 15 years in the making. Now, none of this is to suggest that the relationship with the Indians isn't an important factor. The proximate cause of the rebellion absolutely is those poor relationships boiling over into what would become a full rebellion. However, to say that Bacon's rebellion was caused because of Indian attacks on the settlers and the Virginia government being unresponsive to a threat leaves out major parts of the ultimate cause of the rebellion. My focus, therefore, today is going to be on those long-running causes of the rebellion. To begin dissecting the events of the rebellion, we must go back much further than the Indian attacks of 1675 that would fuel the anger of the farmers along Virginia's frontier. In fact, the roots of the rebellion can really be traced back to 1660. This week, we are going to spend our time focusing on these long-term issues that come to infect the Virginia colony. These are the issues that set the stage and allow a situation where conflict with the Indians could set off something so major. So, to start today, I'm going to look at what has been going on in Virginia since we last left the colony. Since we last left Virginia, one man has come to completely dominate every aspect of Virginian life, their governor, William Berkeley. During the course of writing this episode, it occurred to me that William Berkeley has actually been a part of our story for a really long time now, and yet I have never actually given the guy a proper introduction. Berkeley first came into our story last year when we were discussing Jamestown, and he also made an appearance in our episode on Maryland and most recently Carolina. In the case of Carolina, he, along with his brother, are one of the eight Lord Proprietors. Born in 1605, Berkeley was part of a well-to-do family that had risen to prominence in the preceding century. By all accounts a bright child, Berkeley found himself enrolled at Oxford. After completing his education, Berkeley would make his first foray into high society during the reign of Charles I. Initially coming into court as a playwright, Berkeley soon became a popular fixture at the court and was liked by Charles himself. During the First and Second Bishops' Wars, which was part of the War of Three Kingdoms, which includes the English Civil Wars, Berkeley fought with honor and again was noticed by the now beleaguered king. Knighted for his actions during the war, Berkeley was then sent by Charles to Virginia to replace Sir Francis Wyatt. Arriving to the colony in 1641, it was Berkeley who was the governor during the Third Anglo-Powhatan War, where the Confederacy was finally brought down and their chief Opashinkano was killed. Berkeley's main concern when he assumed the mantle of governor was to attempt to diversify the crops of Virginia. By the 1640s, tobacco wasn't just the cash crop, but really it was the only crop producing revenue in any meaningful way in the region. This is a risky thing for the English. Should their crop fail or competition come along, it could leave Virginia struggling to survive with so many of their eggs in a single basket. In short, Berkeley, and in fact many back in England, felt that an economy that was so tied up in a single crop was dangerously vulnerable. However, despite efforts by Berkeley to expand the crops in Virginia, the colony by this point was synonymous with tobacco. Tobacco is going to remain the cash crop that the entire colony rests upon. 
Berkeley was, to his very core, a royalist. He had been close with Charles I and had risen to prominence fighting for the king during the bishops' wars. It was Charles I who had knighted him and given him his appointment as a royal governor. Now, we all know by this point the English Civil War isn't going to end well for Charles I. Berkeley, however, despite the death of Charles I, remained loyal to the Stuarts and the colony immediately recognized Charles II as its rightful ruler. Oliver Cromwell and company were not amused. Parliament, in response to this slight, would lead a brief blockade of Virginia. Virginia at this point said, yeah, okay, that's enough of that, and decided it was time to get on board with Cromwell. Berkeley, unsurprisingly, lost his job in all of this and in 1652 resigned the governorship. But before you feel too terrible for Sir William Berkeley, know that right before the restoration, there were elections in Virginia for a new governor and William Berkeley regained his lost governorship. With the restoration, Charles II immediately took kindly to the old ally of his father, and Berkeley would quickly become synonymous with Virginia politics. Berkeley's second stint lasts from 1660 to 1677. In total, between his two times in power, Berkeley is the governor for a total of 27 years and remains the longest-serving governor in Virginia's history. During his second stint as the governor of Virginia, the colony is going to increasingly find itself existing and operating at the whims of Berkeley. What develops over the next decade and a half is a system that in modern politics would be generally referred to as cronyism. These changes to the system are going to lead Virginia on the road to having a three-tiered class system. At the top of the ladder are those who are working closely with Berkeley. These are large landowners and they are going to dominate Virginia politics both at the time and in a very different but no less important way following the rebellion. The second group are going to be the poor farmers. These farmers, due to the competition of the larger landowners, are going to spend the next decade getting slowly pushed to the breaking point. It is this group that is going to be so receptive when rebellion comes, and they are going to be the ones to flock to Bacon's side. Finally, there is a third group to consider here, and that is made up of indentured servants and slaves. This group has far less control over their situation than either of the first two groups. When the rebellion comes, Bacon is going to use his influence to try and capture the help of those indentured servants. The first blow to Virginia came in 1660 and 1663 with a set of Navigation Acts. Parliament passed initially in October of 1660 the Navigation Act, which is going to have a profound effect on how the American colonies conducted business. The Acts of 1660 and 1663 together accomplished several ends. First, the Act moved to prevent foreign vessels from entering colonial ports in the Americas. Only ships that were owned and staffed by at least three-quarters Englishmen were allowed to enter American ports. The second part of the Act, which comes out of the 1663 version, further establishes that certain major goods were going to have to be exported to England prior to being sold on a more open market. Among the goods that were now being required to be sent back to England were sugar, cotton, dyes, and, most importantly, tobacco. Shipmasters who were in the business of trading in these goods were further required to post large bonds to the crown to ensure that they were complying with the rules and that they had agreed to return their goods to England. Placing this burden upon ship captains is going to result in an additional expense being passed down to the growers 
to help cover the additional costs associated with trading in these particular items. A third navigation act was passed in 1673, which required the colonists to pay the same duties that those back in England had to pay. Furthermore, and particularly troubling, was the provision that said that those goods specifically mentioned above as needing to be sent back to England now included intercolonial trade. This means that if Virginia wanted to send tobacco up to New England to trade, that would now be forbidden. Instead, the tobacco was going to have to be sent back to England and then from England sold back to New England. This was put in place to ensure that even within the colonies, everybody was paying their dues. In terms of the economic policy of the time, these are perfectly in line with mercantile beliefs. England wanted to maintain a trade imbalance and wanted better control over their colonies from committing unauthorized trade. If, say Virginia, was selling tobacco to France at a lower cost without including England, it was going to reduce French demand and put England in a worse overall position for trade. The thought was that by controlling the channels of trade, England would also be able to control the demand. Now, long term, we are going to talk a whole lot about the Navigation Acts. To say that they were unpopular in the colonies would be about the understatement of the century. These acts were absolutely hated and despised by the colonists. Entire industries popped up in the American colonies to circumvent these acts through what was basically a thriving smuggling industry. It is through this smuggling industry that men like John Hancock are going to enter into our story later on. In the 1760s, we are going to see England attempt to double down efforts on enforcing these navigation acts, which is going to really upset those in the colony, especially up in Boston. However, that is all a story for another day, and as you can guess, we are going to spend a whole lot of time talking about just that subject. In the more immediate times, the Navigation Acts are going to prove to be a major blow to the colonies, especially, however, regarding Virginia. The lack of a diversified economy, the kind of economy that Berkeley himself had been supporting, means that when a blow was dealt to the tobacco trade, it was a blow to the entire economic heart of the colony. The original purpose of this particular set of navigation acts was meant to cripple the Dutch, who the English were, at the time, engaged in a war with. By closing off English ports to the Dutch, it would basically lock them out of trading in the North American tobacco trade. In reality, the effect that the acts had on the colonies was a cooling of demand for their cash crop. Fewer ships were being allowed in, which meant that there was less demand, which meant that the price for tobacco fell. It also meant that instead of having the whole of Europe to trade with, the Virginia planters were now limited to the much smaller England to trade with. Overnight, England became saturated with tobacco. Well, indeed, there was still a demand. The sudden oversupply in England further forced down tobacco prices. While Berkeley himself would have no influence in the passing of the Navigation Acts, he is going to be much more responsible for a more direct taxation being placed on the farmers. While the Navigation Acts surely are not going to be popular, it is the tax structure under Berkeley that is going to really prove to be the fuel that is going to feed the rebellion of 1676. Drain what is now known as the Long Assembly, which is that period from 1662 to 1675, where Berkeley refused to allow an election, corruption and overtaxation became a staple of Virginia life. It is going to be along the lines of this taxation, 
chiefly who is paying it and who isn't, that are going to set up the scene for the rebellion to take place. In one example of this corruption, we see a situation emerge where the assembly learned that royal grants of land in Virginia to new proprietors back in England could pose a challenge to the existing system. Berkeley and the assembly decided that this is not going to stand and issue a new tax to raise funds to buy the new and troublesome proprietors out. A new head tax was issued for £60 of tobacco per person. Keep in mind that this tax is going to affect more than just the individual. Do you have servants? Slaves? Sons? Well, they are all going to be subject to this tax as well, and you, the little peasant landowner, is going to be the one responsible for paying it. This tax would end up raising right around £7,000 sterling. Super imprecise methods tell me that in modern dollars, that would have been in the ballpark of half a million US dollars. Again, that is just a very rough estimate there, as handling the rate of inflation from that era to now is a rather fruitless effort. Either way, it was a significant amount of money raised by the tax, and a tax that was particularly disliked by the peasantry. But hey, at least they bought out all those evil proprietors back in England, right? Well, no. Of the money, we know that nearly 5,000 of it had gone directly to the governor and his allies for their personal use. In fact, none of the money was needed for anything. The Duke of York had vacated the grants of land years before, so there was nothing to buy back. So, of course, at this point, the government refunded the money back to the peasantry, right? Well, no, they definitely did not do that either. Well, this was just one of many unpopular taxes, it is worth noting that among the people having to pay it, there is no evidence that they had any idea of how serious the financial mismanagement had been. The complaint of the commoners was the rate of the tax. They appear unaware that the tax was ultimately unnecessary, nor that the governor and the assembly were skimming most of it off to themselves. This head tax represented the single largest tax that the Virginians had to deal with. However, it was one of several taxes that they had to pay. We are going to discuss the much-hated Fort Tax next time in more detail, but I want to introduce it to you quickly here. Following Native American attacks on the English borders of the Virginia frontier, instead of taking military action, Berkeley instead decided to build a set of forts along the border. These defensive fortifications were, by all accounts, basically large piles of dirt on the land of the richest landlords. The richest landlords who were, in fact, friends of the governor. Of course, to build these forts, it is going to be necessary to pay for them, so Berkeley issued a tax to pay for the endeavor. So, now imagine for a moment that you're a colonist living along the frontier. People are being killed by the Native American tribes along the border, so you look to your leadership, the Virginia government, to take command of the situation. Instead, however, of taking the military action that you want them to take, the government instead decides to build a series of ineffective and pointless defensive forts that are going to do basically zero to keep you from being killed. On top of that, you're now being asked to pay a tax that you can't afford to support these pointless forts. And then, just to rub salt in an open wound, the money that you're paying is being given to the richest landlords, who you probably suspect are completely misusing the money that you couldn't afford to pay in the first place. Again, we are going to talk about this more in our next episode, 
However, just from this alone, you can quickly see the growing discontent between the colonists and the Virginia Assembly. Making matters worse was how the taxes were being assessed and collected. The job of collecting the taxes belonged to the local justice of the peace. These justices were appointed by, you guessed it, Governor Berkeley. The problem with the assessment is that the justices regularly value tobacco below the market rate. The tobacco from these already struggling planters was valued at approximately 16 pounds per hundredweight on the open market. However, the justices were only giving half of the assessed value for the tobacco, just 8 pounds per hundredweight. This means that the effective tax was doubled for poor farmers already struggling under an incredibly burdensome tax load. You needed twice as much tobacco to meet your burdens than the actual market value of that tobacco. The taxes that we have discussed so far are only those taxes being charged by the Virginia government. On top of this are going to come a new set of taxes that were put in place by the Navigation Acts. Recall from just a little while ago that with the new navigation laws in place, the colonists are now no longer able to trade directly with any country other than England, and that because tobacco was in that special category, it had to be shipped back to England directly. For the farmer in Virginia, by the time 1676 rolled around, it was abundantly clear that a lot of people were making a lot of money from their tobacco exports. The only people not making money? The farmer who was actually doing the growing. It is estimated that the average planter was paying somewhere around half of their yearly income in taxes. The oppressively high tax rate in Virginia was a secret to nobody. Records show that in June of 1676, mere weeks before the rebellion would really get going, Crown counselors back in London observed that the people of Virginia were paying a high annual tax. Likewise, they noted that the amount collected from everyone was rising on an annual basis. On the eve of Bacon's Rebellion, the common planter was paying approximately 250 pounds of tobacco per head. This was a crushing amount on the average farmer. To add to this pain, just to, you know, rub a little extra salt into that open wound, there is the fact that the assessment of taxes excluded the largest earners in the colony. Berkeley, the assembly, and the clergy were immune from having to pay any of these taxes that were so burdensome to the average planter. Those who had the means to pay were exempted from the tax entirely. How does one find themselves in such a favorable position, you ask? Well, the main goal here was to be on as good of terms as possible with Governor Berkeley. This system of mismanagement and base-level inequality in the assessment and collection of taxes did not go unnoticed. In the best years, the system would have caused discontent among the masses. However, in a bad year, these stresses are going to morph from loudly complaining to full-fledged tax mutinies. Virginia was a colony that had based its entire economy on tobacco. However, tobacco isn't food, so there was always some consideration given to growing the crops that would also sustain the colonists. Nobody wanted to starve to death. The main crop that the Virginia planters grew was corn. However, recent developments with the local Indian tribes, those same tribes that we are going to be talking about in our next episode, made it impossible for frontier farmers to have a full yield of corn. With the corn crops not at full yield, Virginians were going to be forced to turn to their other sources for food, primarily New England. It had long become common practice that Virginia would import grain from New England, 
which would supplement their food supply. Unfortunately for the planters, however, right when they were dealing with a substandard corn harvest for the year, war broke out in New England. King Philip's War began in 1675, and with it we see a sudden reduction in the amount of grain that New England was going to be able to send to Virginia. For now, don't worry about King Philip's War. Once we wrap up our series on Bacon's Rebellion, King Philip's War is going to get a series of episodes of its own. For this week, just know that the war in New England led to a limited grain supply reaching Virginia in 1675 and in the years to follow. The cost of the corn and grain still available on the market would have soared at this point, as in light of the shortage, there was now a large demand for it, right at a time when the supply had a major drop because of King Philip's War. Finally, as though right on cue, 1676 brought with it a drought. The drought further reduced food supplies while at the same time reducing the supplies of tobacco and hence the profit available. The taxes being paid were not adjusted for a bad tobacco harvest. They were set by weight and that did not change unless the assembly decided to raise taxes. Planters in Virginia were now left with a choice. Pay your taxes as required or feed and clothe your family. What emerges from this in 1675 and 1676 are a series of protests regarding the high tax rate, which, predictably, fell upon mostly deaf ears in the Virginia Assembly, at least until the rebellion started. All of this was going on with Berkeley and his friends getting rich in the background. Those close to Berkeley consistently got the largest tracts of land. By the time 1665 rolled around, the concept of private land ownership, for the most part, was little more than a pipe dream. Instead, the best they could hope for was to rent a tract of land from the wealthy landlords, those friends of Berkeley. This, of course, means that they were going to have to be able to pay rent to those landowners on top of everything else. To put so much of this into perspective, in the years before the war, Berkeley was earning on average about a thousand pounds a year for his work. After everything was paid out, the average farmer was doing pretty good if they managed to bring home three pounds of profit. Things were as unequal as they could be in a system where people had little interest in dealing with it any longer. In this way, Bacon's Rebellion is going to prove to be just as much of a tax revolt as it was anything else. In the years since Berkeley had retaken the governor's office, a system of cronyism had spread like a weed throughout the colony. As taxes progressively climbed higher for the planters, it became harder and harder to meet with the growing burden. In good years, these taxes were oppressive, but dealt with. However, throughout 1675 and 76, King Philip's War in New England, bad harvests, and a drought in 1676 pushed an already tense situation over the edge into what was going to become a full rebellion. People being forced to decide between feeding and clothing their family and paying the required tax were stressed to the breaking point. However, high taxes alone are insufficient to explain the coming events. Beyond just having to pay high taxes, there was growing discontent towards the Virginia government over the perceived inequalities of that tax system. The rich landholders didn't have to pay the taxes that were being assessed. They were exempted from it on account of being assemblymen. Berkeley did an expert job of keeping his friends loyal. 
largely by setting them up not only to avoid the taxes directly, but also by placing them in a position where they would be receiving the tax revenue directly in, for example, the case of the port tax. The proximate cause of Bacon's Rebellion is going to be over tensions with the local Native American tribes that the Virginia government failed to adequately respond to. We touched on the issue of the Fort Tax today and are going to cover this in much more depth in our next episode. Suffice it to say, however, that this plan is going to prove to be woefully inadequate in the eyes of the Virginia planters along the frontier. All of this is going to explain why, when tensions spill over during the summer of 1676, so many colonists were willing and eager to join Bacon's cause. Next time, we are going to discuss the events that took place with the local Native American tribes that would push civil discontent into the realm of open rebellion. Until then, I hope you are all remaining healthy and staying safe. I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we continue to look at the causes of Bacon's Rebellion. Rebellion.